In uh, 1667, George Michael Pfeffercorn penned the hymn, What is the World to Me? It comes in at a mere eight verses long. And sadly, we won't be singing his uh, song today. Uh, but I, I do wish to read just a few lines from Pfeffercorn's uh, great hymn. Because I believe it captures the spirit of the scriptural text that we're studying together today. The, the overarching theme of Pfeffercorn's hymn is simply that God's love is greater than the world's love. God's love is greater than the world's love because it lasts longer than the world's love. So this is verse 2 from Pfeffercorn's hymn. The world is like a cloud and like a vapor fleeting, a shadow that declines swift to its end retreating. My Jesus doth abide, though all things fade and flee. My everlasting rock, what is the world? To me. That was verse 2. Here's verse 7. The world abideth not, lo, like a flash, twill vanish. With all its gorgeous pomp, pale death it cannot banish. Its riches pass away, and all its joys must flee. But Jesus doth abide. What is the world to me? Through seven verses, Pfeffercorn, he, he compares the passing nature of the world to the glorious, surpassing permanence of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, he piles up all of the glories of Jesus that he has mentioned in the hymn and effectively says that Jesus is my hope. Listen to this wonderful confession of faith and, and ask yourself, is this my confession? Listen to how personal it is. And ask yourself, do, do I feel this way? Do I think this way about the Lord Jesus? He writes, what is the world to me? My Jesus is my treasure, my life, my health, my wealth, my friend, my love, my pleasure, my joy, my crown, my all, my bliss eternally. Once more then, I declare, what is the world to me? Friends, this morning as we look at Psalm 39... God's word forces us to ask ourselves this question. Where is my hope? Is it, is it in the world? Or is it in the one who made the world and even now sustains the world? And may our answer be this. God, my hope is in you. If you haven't done so already, please, please turn in your copies of God's word to Psalm 39. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on the bottom of page 457, 467. And when you make it to Psalm 39, you're going to find uh, an inscription that says something to the effect of, to the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. This reveals that David is not only the principal author of the psalm, but that he intended it for corporate worship. He gave this psalm, this poem, over to Jeduthun, who was a, a Levite, especially appointed for leading the people of God in song. In, in other words, the people of Israel would have sung this song as they gathered for worship at the tabernacle and then later the temple. And while David does not provide us with the historical circumstances for this psalm, he does provide us with the nature of his difficulties kind of scattered throughout the psalm. He, he gives us a description of what he's facing. And, and this allows us to see whether, whether we face trials that are, are similar to David's. It also means that we can learn from how David responded to his trials. And we can go and do likewise. We must listen to these inspired words 
meditate on this psalm's message and submit ourselves to the directives of God's word. It's his word to us. So let me just give you the message of Psalm 39 right away, right now. In your distress, keep your tongue from evil. Keep your end and view and keep your hope in God. That's the message of Psalm 39. It's going to be the outline of the rest of the sermon. In your distress, number one, keep your tongue from evil. Number two, keep your end in view. And number three, keep your hope in God. That's the message of Psalm 39. Let's begin with our first point. Keep your tongue from evil. And as we begin to look at this, follow along as I read Psalm 39. Just verses 1 to 3 now. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. It's not difficult that in, to see that in these verses, David purposes to keep his tongue from evil. He purposes to muzzle his mouth, to be mute and silent, to hold his peace. David even takes himself by the collar and he addresses himself. Right? The psalm begins there with you see those two words, I said. What we're getting here in these first three verses is an address to himself. David is doing a, a, a bit of preaching to himself. He's saying, look here, David. In your distress, you're going to keep your tongue from evil. Have you ever talked to yourself like this? For me, it's a hold your tongue, Michael. Zip it, Michael. Just, just listen. You ever talk to yourself like that? That's what David's doing here. But, but what is the situation in which David is purposing to keep his tongue from evil? Since we're not given the historical context, we've got to kind of scour the psalm for clues about David's situation. Given that David is keeping his mouth closed, he may very well be in a situation where he's expected to speak. Certainly, according to the end of verse 1, during the course of this trial, the wicked are from time to time in his presence. See, according to verse 2 there, this situation for David, it's distressing. It makes his heart hot, according to verse 3. If you skip down to verse 7... You'll see that David says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Whatever the situation may be, it appears to involve the passage of time, perhaps a, a significant portion of time. This is further bolstered by David's plea there in verse 9 and 10, for the Lord to remove his stroke from his hand of discipline from David. David has felt God's hand is heavy upon him. It's wearing David down. It's consuming his precious energy. David's own sin may have even contributed to this situation, you see there in verse 8, he asked the Lord to deliver him from all of his transgressions. He asked the Lord to avert the scorn of the fool. So, so I were forced to kind of pick, uh, identify this psalm with some era or event in David's life. I think I'd probably pick Absalom's rebellion and the uh, kind of attendant events. But we, can't just know, we just can't know for sure. What we do know is that, is, as is often the case with difficult circumstances... It's usually not just one factor that's making things difficult. It's a whole host of factors. And that's what's going on with David, isn't it? There's David's anger, his transgressions, the wicked's presence, the fool's scorn, and God's heavy hand. Seems like an unbearable situation, doesn't it? I wonder if you can identify with David and with some portion of what he has experienced or is experiencing. Have you ever wanted to let your tongue loose? To just really let someone have a piece of your mind? 
In our distress, it's far easier to curse than to bless. In our distress, it's far easier to hurt and to hinder rather than to heal and to help. Has your heart ever been hot like David's? Has the bitterness ever smoldered within you? Have you ever inwardly groaned in distress? You're grieved over your transgressions and sins. Have you ever lamented the consequence, the consequences you've brought upon yourself due to your sin? Have you ever been confused by God's hand of discipline? Why, why is your hand heavy upon me now, O oh Lord? Have you ever felt the unpleasantness of that experience? Well, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I just I want you to observe that the Bible does not communicate that the Christian life is only full of sunshine and roses. It's often full of difficulty. Jesus told His disciples that in this world we, we will have troubles. David and the Bible are honest about life in this world. It's hard. It's full of toil and often too much pain. But here's where we can learn from David and the Scriptures. In our distress, we would be wise to keep our tongues from evil. Look again at the first part of verse 1. Do you see it there? I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. David, he would not fit in very well in our culture, would he? Uh, he's actually purposing to hold his tongue. In our day and age, we're constantly encouraged to post, to tweet, to blog, to update our status, to like, to unlike, to speak out on every conceivable issue at every possible opportunity. If we have something to say, we should say it, right? Not necessarily. The Bible gives us parameters for our speech. Is it true? Is it loving? Is it the right time? Does it give grace? My father-in-law would add, is it funny? Well, the Bible gives us parameters, and it's astounding that David purposes to hold his tongue. You can see why, can't you? He does not want to sin. Oh, that that would be the motivation of our own hearts for how, why, and when we use our mouths. Oh, that we would fear to sin and so be silent. There's a connection between guarding your ways and placing a governor on the wagging tongue. If we're not concerned that our ways match the ways of our holy God, then it will be even more difficult not to sin with our tongues. The desire for holiness and the pursuit of holiness helps to put a bridle on the tongue because the overriding concern is not that we are heard, but that God's glory is not harmed. We see something of this in David's special concern for the presence of the wicked. David, though he may very well be struggling mightily under the rebuke of God's hand, he does not want to say anything that would encourage or further the unbelief of the wicked or call God's character into question. Brothers and sisters, let us be very careful about our speech in the presence of those who do not serve the Lord. At all times, but especially in the presence of the lost, let us keep our tongues from evil. Let us keep our tongues from questioning God's goodness and love, or charging God with wrongdoing. Has it ever been difficult to bite your tongue? What about when you have been successful in holding your tongue? As you have been silent, has strife continued to stir within you? That's what's happening with David, according to verse 2. His distress is growing worse. His heart is growing hot. He keeps his mouth closed, but his mind keeps churning. 
That's what the word mused means. In his silence, David is turning things over in his mind. He's, he's thinking on things. He's meditating. He's pondering. We usually do not sit and think about, time, uh, about things. We, we do not muse these days. We'd rather be amused than to muse. To be amused is to be entertained, but to muse is to think. Musing takes mind muscles, but amusement takes little to no work. David is musing. He's turning his situation over and over in his mind, and yet the fire still burns within him. Sometimes when we sit and think over our situation, our difficult circumstance, the picture does not improve. Our emotions do not cool. Our hearts are not at peace. And as we can see with the end of verse 3, David is about to speak. He, he cannot remain silent forever. When David does speak, it will be righteous speech. It will be humble and purposeful speech. It will not be speech in the presence of the wicked, but speech in the presence of God. It will be speech tempered by eternity and speech timely for the present. We will consider those words in a moment, but for now we should reflect upon how David's silence reminds us of the silence of his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah told us that the Messiah, that he would be oppressed and afflicted, and yet he would not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he would not open his mouth. And that's precisely what Jesus did. Jesus kept his tongue from evil with the, the wicked arrayed before him in his trial, uttering lies and false accusations. We're told in Matthew 26, 63, that Jesus remained silent. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, we're told that Jesus made no answer. How our righteous Savior must have burned from within as lies were being uttered. And yet, for us and for our salvation, He remains silent. Righteous anger and holy heat for the truth must have welled up within Him. And yet, for us and for our salvation, Jesus kept His tongue from evil. In the midst of that distress, and in the midst of our distress, we must plead for the grace of God to do the same. And may I just commend silence to you once more. In the midst of pain and distress, often we fill our mouths with words. And when we do, we, we crowd out opportunity for God to speak to us through His Word. It may be that in our moments of distress that our God wants us to close our mouths so that we may hear what's coming out of His. In your distress, keep your tongue from evil, but keep your ears open. Muse and meditate, not on the words of strangers and sinners. Muse and meditate, not on your own words. Do not muse and meditate on what you would have said if you could have that conversation again. Don't muse and meditate on what you will say the next time. Muse and meditate on God's Word. What could help us hold our tongues? David teaches us that the brevity of life can help us hold our tongues. David teaches us that in our distress, not only should we keep our tongues from evil, but that we should keep our end in view. So let's turn and consider the, the second instruction of Psalm 39. Keep your end in view. Follow along as I read Psalm 39, verses 4 to 6 now. 
O Lord Yahweh, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere handbreadth, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. David is weak and heavy laden. He was cumbered with a load of care. So what did he do? Well, he turned to the Lord in prayer. And his prayer is surprising, isn't it? I mean, this isn't what you would expect from someone whose heart is hot. Well, we don't expect this petition. Make me know the end, my end, and what is the measure of my days. What is David praying for? He's praying for the Lord to remind him of how brief, fleeting, and few are his days. David recognizes that God has made his days but a few handbreadths. You see that there in verse 5. David recognizes that God has made his days but a few handbreadths. That's, that's just four fingers. Just that distance. He's saying just a few of those. That's how, that's how long my life is. Our span of life is brief. Psalm 90 verse 10 tells us the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble and they are soon gone and we fly away. Life is short. 70 or 80 its not a long time. Especially in relation to God. Did you notice that in verse 5? David sets the length of his life before God. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Right, consider God's eternality. Consider how God sees all of time, all the time, at every point in time. And consider the length of your life from His vantage point. Consider your life's brevity in the sight of God. A mere, mere breath of air, here and then gone. And when David says, surely... All mankind stands as a mere breath. At the end of verse 5 there, he's communicating a number of things. Number one, he's saying that what happens to one happens to all. You see, it's not just David whose life is brief. Everyone's life is brief. David bounces back and forth between singular and plural in these verses. Verses 4 and 5 include much of David. The end of verses 5 and all of 6 bring mankind into view. Still, that's not all. David is also saying that our lives are a a mist, a vapor, a puff of wind or smoke. This is the same idea that the writer of the Ecclesiastes brought out. And when you think about the image of a breath, it's not not something that can be grasped onto, is it? You you can't hold onto breath or a puff of smoke. It, it, It vanishes. Life is short and it slips through your grasp as if you had any much control over it. It's short and it slips through your grasp. Those are two S's. Then come two T's there in verse 6. David talks about turmoil and treasure. Right? Typically speaking, mankind is in turmoil for nothing. And by that David means that man, he, he toils away in life. Man is always bustling and busy, but for what? For what? You literally can't take it with you. 
That's what David says about your treasure. You're toiling for all this treasure. You're in turmoil over it and seeking to secure it, making sure you don't lose it. And guess what? When you die, someone else is going to gather it up. You, you don't even know who that's going to be. Verse 6, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You cannot know for certain that your money will go to your kids or whoever else you want it to go to. You know why? You won't be there to make sure it goes to them. You'll be dead and gone. That's what David is saying. Someone else is going to gather it and you don't know who that is. Keep your end in view. Your life is short. It slips through your grasp. It's full of turmoil and your treasure is taken from you. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon on Job, says this. Perhaps when you read the history of Job, you read it as a strange thing that happened but once in the world. But for the time to come, read it as a thing that happens daily and frequently. For every man at death is as much deprived of all his worldly goods as Job was. The history of Job is only a shadow of death. It is no more than what happens to every man in the world. That'll happen to us. Edwards, he would later say this. We cannot think too often of our latter end. Death serves all alike. As he deals with the poor, so he deals with the rich. He is not awed at the appearance of a proud palace, a numerous attendance, or a majestic countenance. He pulls a king out of his throne and summons him before the judgment seat of God with as few compliments and as little ceremony as he takes the poor man out of his cottage. Do you hear what David is saying? He's saying this life is short. It slips through your grasp. It is filled with toil for treasure that will be taken by another. It's a cheery psalm, isn't it? It, it actually really is. It, it really, really and truly is. If you understand what David is seeking to accomplish. If you can stare and muse over your death, over your end then your distress in the present can be put into perspective, eternal perspective. And that doesn't mean it goes away. It doesn't mean your distress goes away. It doesn't mean it necessarily gets easier. But it is put in perspective. If you can stare and muse over your end from God's perspective, then you can actually live. This meditation on the shortness of life, we're going to think more about it tonight in our evening service. So come back and think with us about James chapter 4. There. This meditation on the shortness of life is helping David in his distress. And it should help you in your distress too. How does it help David in his distress? Well, David, he's gaining a larger perspective and a longer perspective, isn't he? As he views his distress distress through the lens of death. Listen to these words from from David Gibson in his excellent little book, uh, Living Life Backwards, which is essentially a treatise on how to live life in light of your end. Gibson writes, The wise person sits in the funeral home and stares at the coffin and realizes that one day it will be his turn. The person who lives like this is not morbid. On the contrary, what characterizes a person who lives like this is depth. Instead of being superficial, death invites you to be a person of depth. Only someone who knows how to weep will really know what it means to laugh. It's an invitation to be a person who realizes that living a good life means preparing to die a good death. 
Have you ever met people like this? They're actually fully alive, fully engaged with the world, with their family, and the goodness of creation because they know they have it all on loan. It's a gift. And that one day, God will simply call time. But when He does, they're ready to go. Life is a gift. We're meant to enjoy it by God. To enjoy this moment. And each moment that He gives with us with one another. Look, if, if David's entire life is short, then this trial is shorter still. And even if it's not, it's going to come to an end. So his trial, his distress will come to an end. Recognizing that life is short helps us to properly estimate and weigh the significance of the trial itself. Not only that, but recognizing that life is short helps us to endure the trial too. It opens the possibility that we might not be so eager in conflict. What's this argument worth in light of eternity? Maybe, just maybe, if we recognize the shortness of life, then we would be less prone to argue with loved ones and coworkers. Maybe, just maybe, we could let go of that offense and let love cover over sin. If we recognize that life is short, that it slips through our grasp, then that might open us up to the possibility of contentment and gratitude for what we do have. Maybe, just maybe, we would see that God has already been immensely generous to us, that life is a great gift. Maybe, just maybe, we would be less focused on gain. If we recognize that life isn't all about toil for treasure, that someone else will take, then maybe, just maybe, we'll be a little less clingy to earthly treasure. Maybe we'll work a few less hours and enjoy time with our family and church family. Maybe we'll heed Jesus' words on treasure, right? Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, put your work in this light. If you're laboring for a career that won't satisfy, and it won't, it's not meant to, it's not designed for that. If you're laboring for a house that won't satisfy, if you're laboring for a retirement that won't satisfy, then stop it. Someone else is going to gather it up. Like, make their work easy. Give them less to gather. Don't leave them a lot to gather. If you're concerned about how your money is spent, then spend it. Be generous. Bless others. Give a lot of it away for the glory of God. And now that the knowing teens in our congregation are worried about their inheritance, you should be. I'm telling your parents to give most of it away. And to spend it for the glory of God. You know what else I'm also telling them? I'm telling them that life is short. Don't exchange so much toil at work for time with your family, which includes your church family. That trade is too costly. I think we'll end up regretting it. I would also caution you and then them from spending too much time and toil on extracurricular activities like sports and hobbies. I'm not saying don't spend any time. I'm just saying don't spend too much time. You need exercise. You certainly need uh, mentally engaging things to do, yes, but be careful not to spend too much time on something you will not be doing for the length of your life. You're short, 
life. Youth sports, it's really one of this world's idols. And we shouldn't pretend that it isn't after us too. And I, I'm sympathetic. Look, I, I grew up playing ice hockey from the time I was six to the time I was 18. I played for 12 years. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the rink. It was fun. It was wonderful. It was good for me. Right? But we have to measure, measure and weigh the worship of the living God and serving Him. Life is so short. So much of it has already been spent. Consider now that you have very little left to spend. Spend it wisely. Spend it growing and going deeper into the things of God. Things that will last. The Apostle Paul, Apostle John actually, tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I can't uh, but help quote another poem, this one by C.T. Studd, who said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When we keep our end in view, our toil for treasure is put in proper perspective. When we keep our end in view, we can see that life is short and we can endure distress for the glory of God and the good of others. Keeping our end in view... We can endure the difficulties of the present because we know the glorious future that awaits us. Let us remember that this is what Jesus did for us and for our salvation. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, that Jesus endured the distress of the cross for the joy that was set before Him. Among other joys, Jesus endured the distress of the cross for the delight of seeing His people forgiven. It was only after that painful work of priestly mediation that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Brothers and sisters, as we suffer and struggle and strive in this world, let us remember that all of it will be short compared to eternity. And that all difficulty will give way to delight when our Savior returns or calls us home. Let us endure on the path of following Christ in faith for the passing fancies of this world are followed by the precious and permanent joys of life with Christ in heaven. Keep your end in view and endure accordingly. Since you expect to live with Christ in heaven, aim to live for Him on earth. Keep your end in view and spend your short life in His service. And what I'm saying here simply is what David says in verses 7 to 13 of our psalm. All I'm exhorting you to do here is to keep your hope in God. That's how you endure. You keep your hope in God. So let's turn and consider our third point. Keep your hope in God. Follow along as I read verses 7 to 13 now. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. 
these verses are thoroughly filled with hope. David hopes that his waiting isn't forever. He hopes for deliverance from all his transgressions. He hopes that he will not be the scorn of the fool. He hopes for a removal and an end to the discipline that he is undergoing. He is hoping to end his silence. He's hoping that God will hear his prayers. He's hoping that he has an interest in the covenant love of God. That he is beloved just as his fathers were. He hopes for a happy day. A, a day in which God's countenance will be, his angry countenance will be turned away from him. And that God's shining face would be set upon him in love. These verses are thoroughly filled with hope. And all of David's hope is anchored in God. David's question in verse 7 is intriguing, isn't it? And now, O Lord, for, for, for what do I wait? David, he's, he continues to preach to himself, doesn't he? If, if life is short, if it slips through your grasp, if, if you toil for treasure that's going to be taken by another, then what are you waiting for, David? You know what to do. Put your hope in God. You put your hope in the only one who is not passing away. If this life is transient, we trust in the God as eternal. Keep your hope in God. Trust that He is gracious and that He can and will deliver you from all your transgressions. Right? The brevity of life does not mean we can brush aside our conflict with God. The brevity of life does not mean that we should go on sinning and soaking ourselves in the satisfaction of our sinful flesh. The brevity of life means that we should seek the forgiveness of our sins as soon as possible. What are you waiting for? As soon as David recognizes his short life, he goes to God and asks for the forgiveness of his sins. He asks the Lord to deliver him from all of his transgressions. I wonder, have you done that? Have you gone to God and asked him to deliver you? Have you come to him as your only hope in life and in death? Have you put your hope in God? Friends, this life and the next are hopeless without God. You see, we have committed innumerable transgressions against the infinite, eternal, and holy God. And transgression is, is just another word for sin. That is where we either fail to keep God's law or where we positively break God's law. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've lived our own way rather than God's way. And because we have sinned against the infinite, eternal, and holy God, we are all in danger of facing His infinite, eternal, and holy wrath. But the good news of the Bible is that in the words of verse 7, there's hope in God. In the words of verse 8, we may be delivered from, do you see that word? All, all of our transgressions. Isn't that good news? You may be forgiven of every single sin you have ever committed. And we've got a lot of them, don't we? Unlike what the world will tell you, the Bible tells you, tells us, that we cannot save ourselves. Unlike what the world will tell you, we cannot deliver ourselves from the mess that we've made. No, we must place our hope in someone else. We must place our hope in God and in God alone. The Bible tells us that in order to deliver us from all of our transgressions, God Himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, yet without sin. Jesus was actually a part of the line of David, the author of this psalm. Jesus, as God in the flesh, 
He did not have any transgressions. He never once sinned. He came to deliver us from all of our transgressions. And He did that by bearing the infinite, eternal, and holy wrath of God the Father on the cross. And do you know what Jesus endured on the cross? As He bore God's wrath for our sin, He bore the scorn of fools. He was mocked and mistreated by men. He was also mute. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus knew that it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He knew that it was God the Father who had done it, in the words of verse 9. Sure, He was crucified by the hands of lawless men, but it was also His Father in heaven who put Him to grief, as Isaiah said. Jesus asked the Father to remove His stroke from Him, that He would let the cup pass. But in the end, Jesus said, Not my will, but yours be done. So on the cross, Jesus was spent by the hostility of God's hand against our sin. And do you know what Jesus prayed as He hung on the cross? He prayed, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Can you believe it? Jesus prayed that God would forgive those who were sinning against Him as they crucified Him. He was so full of mercy and so ready to forgive. And He remains so full of mercy and so ready to forgive. And what was true of those who nailed Him with their hands is true of those who believe. It was our sin that held Him there until our transgressions were pent and spent and, and all of God's wrath was spent against His Son. He remained there until our deliverance was accomplished. And in verse 13, David says, Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. And what David is saying is this, Stop looking upon me in wrath. Stop looking upon me in wrath. And this was even more true of Jesus. As Jesus hung on the cross, darkness and the countenance of divine displeasure descended upon Him. And Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here is the answer to Jesus' question. You are forsaken. He was forsaken. So that sinners may be forgiven. Or in the words of our psalm, delivered from all of our transgressions. And three days after Jesus' death, God the Father heard His prayer. And so raised Jesus from the dead. And now Jesus invites all of us to be delivered from all of our transgressions by placing all of our hope in Him. Listen to these words from Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 37. They're so precious. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's what Jesus says. Did you, you hear what the Savior is saying? He's saying if you come to Him and you place your hope in Him, He will not cast you out. He will not turn you away. And you might say, but I, but I have so many sins. And Jesus says, I will not cast you out. I can deliver you from all of your sins. You might say, but, but I, I've been sinning for such a long time. And Jesus says, I will, I will not cast you out. For my love is longer than the length of your sins. And you might say, but my sins, they're so wicked. And Jesus would say, I will not cast you out. For my blood washes away all of your wickedness. 
Friend, what are you waiting for? Turn from your sin and put your hope in Jesus. Dear Christian, you have put your hope in God and you need to keep putting your hope in God day by day. Verses 7 to 13, they exhort us to keep putting our hope in God. We keep our hope in God by calling out for deliverance from our sins day by day. By turning from our sins and trusting in Christ yet again. We keep our hope in God and ask Him to deliver us from the scorn of fools. Brothers and sisters, we may ask God to remove the scorn of the world. That's a fine prayer to make, a good prayer to make, a prayer that we should make. And here's the truth. We're receiving a lot of scorn from the world, and I'm not sure it will abate. It will likely abound. But we can ask our God to remove the scorn of the world, but He has not promised that He will do so. So, so what should we do? We should persevere. We should keep putting our hope in God, remembering our end. The world's scorn will last a very short while. It will be so short in light of eternity. Hold your tongue. If the Lord allows His people to be scorned, He is no doubt allowing it for very good reasons. Perhaps to sweeten eternity for us. Perhaps to sweeten these words to us. When the words of scorn are done, we will hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. We can endure the scorn of the world for a short time, for we will hear these words. Enter into the joy of your master. We keep our hope in God, asking for deliverance from all of our transgressions and deliverance from the scorn of the fool. And we can also keep our hope in God even as we ask Him to deliver us from the discipline that we undergo. We can, we can ask God to remove the stroke of His discipline. And yet in His wisdom, He might let it linger until He has fully prepared us to share in His holiness. You see, the Bible teaches us that God disciplines the sons and daughters that He loves. That's even a sign of His love to us. God may discipline us for sin, and He may do so in order to remove out of us sinful and fleshly lusts. David uses the, uh, the image of a moth consuming what's dear to him. That's a mercy of God if our desires are sinful, isn't it? Consider that God's discipline removes from our hearts and lives those things that are dear but dangerous to us and to our souls. You see the love of God in His discipline. Discipline is painful, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, but it yields in God's wise and divine design the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We may ask for God to remove His discipline. And as we do, we should continue to remember that He only gives what's best. We may ask God to give ear to our cries. We may ask for God to, to do something about our distress. That's what David is asking for there in verse 12 when he prays, Hold not your peace at my tears. He wants God to speak and to act, to do something about his difficulty. He wants God to speak and act because, do you see there, he is a sojourner with God, a guest like my father's. This is what Yahweh says of his people in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. God says to his people, you are strangers and sojourners with me. And, and so David is saying, look, I, I, I'm one of your people. He, he's pleading his inclusion and interest in the covenant. He's saying, I, I belong to you. 
I'm, I'm, I'm walking with you in this world. I'm, I'm sojourning with you. I'm, I'm still hoping in with you. Just like Abraham sojourned with you in faith, so I'm sojourning with you. And that's why he continues on in verse 13 as if to say, so since I'm sojourning with you in hope, sojourn with me in your good pleasure. Sojourn with me in your good pleasure, not your divine displeasure. Before my life comes to an end, help me to feel the sweetness of your love for me so that I can smile and know that I'm safe. Christian, note David's hope, even to the end of this psalm, right? That the darkness, it, it has not lifted for David, and yet he keeps his hope in God. Down to the last petition, David keeps his hope and God, it, it seems a desperate petition, and indeed it is a desperate petition in the end, but it is a petition because he hopes in God and believes that God can deliver him, that God can answer him. Do you know why? Because hope, according to the Bible, is a solid conviction. Hope is not a, a, a wish. It is a heavy certainty, so heavy that it outweighs the present distress. That's what hope does. And as we conclude, consider that your present distress will pass away. Why? Because in the words of George Pfefferkorn, the world is like a cloud. It's like a vapor fleeting, a shadow that declines, swift to its end, retreating. Since this is so, might we be wise to hold our tongues, to keep them from evil, and humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Might we be wise to consider our end? Might we be wise to consider the, the shortness of our days and so spend them in the service of our good and gracious God? Might we be wise not to wait any longer, but instead to put our hope in Him for the deliverance from our sins and from our present distress? Dear Christian, remember that one day, one day He will wipe away every tear from your eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. This is our hope. So in your distress, keep your tongue from evil. Keep your end in view, that glorious end. And keep your hope in God.